0: And I think also the thing that people don't appreciate is that it's because the penetration of gaming is so high, whereas not everybody likes football, even though football culturally feels ubiquitous. It's actually, you know, we're talking about if it's 50% of the population, that's great. But gaming is 80%, 90% of the population. You just can't beat those numbers.
1: Welcome back to the Sporting Crypto Podcast, where we talk to leaders in Web3 and sport about their journeys and experiences in this weird world. Joining me on this episode is Robbie Young, CEO of Animoca Brands. Robbie, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks so much for being on. Why don't you begin by telling listeners, viewers, a little bit more about what your energy is currently focused on?
0: Sure, no problem. So Animoca Brands, we are, I guess, Best known for two things. Uh, On the one hand, we make games. We focus specifically on games leveraging Web3 infrastructure. That's all kinds of games, everything from casual mobile games to more console style AAA games that you play on PC. So, all platforms. And we do that from studios around the world. So, all different kinds of gameplay styles. Uh, And then we're also a very active investor in Web3. And so, we have a portfolio between us and our venture fund uh, of almost 500 companies now across the sector. Uh, that we've invested in. And the venture portfolio is probably loosely, I'd say, half in infrastructure related investments um, in Web3. And then the other half would be content related, um, the biggest piece of which, of course, is gaming. I
1: think a brand that many people know of but maybe don't know the intricacies of how much you folks do, how long has the venture part of the business been around for?
0: We've been around as a game studio since 2009, um, so we were formed originally at the beginning of sort of the dawn of mobile gaming, as a mobile gaming studio, and then we pivoted to blockchain and um, to focus exclusively on the intersection of blockchain and gaming at the end of 2017. And then in 2018, as we were still sort of in our early journey in, in the blockchain world, uh, we started investing. And we started doing it in a strategic way at first, meaning we did small investments or share swaps. And most of these were all kind of BD related because we were building relationships with emerging platforms, you know, obviously in in blockchain terms, layer one and layer two, scaling solutions and things like that, or content partners. And as our ambitions grew, as momentum grew in the sector, we started making more and more investments. And then um, it just got a little bit out of hand.
1: The snowball effect, right? It,
0: it exactly was.
1: <laughs> and in terms of your personal journey, up until the Web3 point, you've got a background in media, mobile gaming, you obviously mentioned. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So I've always been in what the bankers call TMT, so telecoms, media and technology. I started out in telecoms originally. Um, to date myself, it was analog at the time, but always in mobile. I had my first startup in the late 90s at the beginning of sort of the web 1.0 era. Um, and that's actually when I got to know Yatsio, who's the, the co-founder of Animoca Brands. And we became friends because we, we were both part of a small startup community in Hong Kong at that time, working on helping convince the world that everybody needed a website and needed to be on the internet. After I closed that business, after the internet.com bubble burst and people decided, that why did they possibly need a website? Because in 2001, that was the last thing on anybody's mind. And I started a more traditional media business with a couple of friends, and this was an ad-supported media business where we acquired magazine, TV, and outdoor assets in China, and we did a roll-up consolidating all these assets. Uh, We did a couple of IPOs off of that portfolio, and then I joined what became Animoca Brands uh, because I felt like mobile gaming... First, I'd never been in gaming before. I was not any more a gamer than anybody else, really, but... To me, it was a really interesting new platform because it kind of brought together lots of pretty much everything I'd ever done. You know, it's, it's a little bit telecoms, it's quite a big dab of media, and it's a lot of internet, all in one product.
1: The Web3 pivot that you mentioned, mm-hmm. at the time Web3 wasn't really a word, right? What was the thinking behind that and why did you folks see so much potential?
0: So starting in twenty. 20- 16, we began searching for new areas of growth because growth overall in mobile gaming and mobile generally was slowing down. And to put that in perspective, by slowing down, I mean, our business was no longer doubling and tripling in size annually, right? And when your business only grows 30 to 50% in a high growth sector, you start to worry because that looks much more traditional and you're in a sector that's, you know, highly competitive and fraught with risk, et cetera. And so as we were looking for new areas of growth, we experimented with content categories. We experimented with revenue models, you know, subscription models, and just, you know, we're always trying stuff. We're always trying to innovate. And one of the things that we came across was we came across blockchain. And we were fortunate enough to collaborate with a small group in Vancouver who were working on a hackathon project. And the idea behind their hackathon project was essentially to see if they could use blockchain technology to create unique digital content items as opposed to just cryptocurrency, which was what it had been used for until then. And so they created a new standard, which um, for those taking notes out there is the ERC-721 standard. So they invented the NFT. And this team later became known as Dapper Labs. And so we worked with them on a game called CryptoKitties, which was a trading card game, essentially, where people traded collectible cards of images of cats, cute cats. And These were all individually tokenized on the blockchain. And when we had the opportunity to work on this project as as the publisher in Greater China, it kind of opened our eyes as to the potential of this idea of true digital ownership. And the part of it that really struck us was actually what we would be doing by putting blockchain infrastructure into our games was essentially codifying and validating a system that actually already existed. So when people play games, the predominant business model of games is what we call the free-to-play model. And this has been the case for more than a decade, probably 15 years. And it was popularized in big MMO games like World of Warcraft, and particularly in Asian games. And the free-to-play model basically says that you should be able to play the game for free, but within the game, you then pay for cosmetic upgrades or things that enhance your play or power or you know a bigger sword a faster car what have you and you spend money in the game the more you play and that way everybody can try the game and it opens up your user acquisition funnel very broadly because anybody can try it for free and then your most active players some percentage of those players will convert to paying users and spend money with you and that's the free-to-play model what the free-to-play model has done is It has opened up gaming and mobile as a platform has opened up gaming so that gaming is the world's biggest entertainment medium. And people forget that, you know, gaming is bigger than TV and outdoor and recorded music feature film combined. And it's the fastest growing, right? Yeah. Even though we're somewhat saturated on numbers because 5 billion people play games. (laughs) So there's only another billion left to go, I think. Um, And then we're pretty much at earth. But because of mobile as a distribution platform, everybody plays games. Most people have tried Candy Crush or Cut the Rope or Angry Birds or things on mobile, even if they never owned a PlayStation, for example. The way that gamers interact with games is they have been habituated over the last 15 years of buying virtual currency to spend on virtual items inside games. And what do we do when we tokenize stuff? We give you A fungible token like ethereum for example and you can spend that virtual currency on virtual items which we tokenize as nfts in our games and so this idea is that when we include blockchain as the infrastructure in a game we don't actually ask gamers to do anything different from what they've already been doing for more than a decade they buy virtual currency they spend it on virtual stuff however there is an absolute difference in what we're offering them in return which is we're offering them true digital ownership. So currently they exist in a world which is kind of like the feudal age of content, if you will, right? These are fiefdoms where they're controlled by the software developer from the top down who determines the value of all objects and commerce is only one way. They sell you stuff, you buy stuff. That's it, plain and, simple. and That's fine. People have been enjoying and playing games, and we've been a big beneficiary of this business model for decades. But from the consumer's point of view, ever since content turned digital, purely digital, as opposed to when I started gaming, we had cartridges, and then later you had CDs and physical media, ever since content became digital, it has basically had no value because there's no way to protect the copyright of that content. So when I buy something in a game, I spend money on those digital items. I'm told I own them, but in fact, I don't really own them. I'm renting them. So this is a rental economy. So the $200 billion a year that's spent in games is largely a rental economy. And so what happens is by codifying that content on the blockchain, we can then offer true ownership of that. And by ownership, I mean... When you own that item, it exists independently of the game itself because you can take that sword or that trading card or whatever that tokenized object is and you can hold it, possess it outside of the game. So if the game shuts down, I still own my collectible item from that game and I can trade it in a marketplace with somebody else. And that peer-to-peer trading activity is very important because that's something that players have done for generations. I mean, since the invention of the baseball card a century ago. And so I think that what we can then offer because of this technology of blockchain is essentially a way to give a much more fair equation to the player and the fan because they can actually own their own content and it forms a much stronger value proposition. I was literally going to
1: ask, why is it important that we have digital ownership? But I think you you hit that on the mark. And we are going to talk a lot about gaming later on in the show. I wanted to ask you, from an Animoca brand's perspective, you folks made a bunch of investments over 500 portfolio companies. Where have you seen
0: most of the success until now? So I guess it depends on how you define success, because we're in an emerging technology area, so it grows quickly and yet sometimes it feels like it takes forever for things to happen. And I think that's just because there's a lot of volatility and the sector changes very quickly. But I think the most successes that we've had have been with the companies that have really innovated and provided landmark either technology contributions or business model contributions to the space. And I can give you a couple of examples of that there are of course infrastructure companies you know we're investors in most of the major blockchains and and layer two scaling solutions and to the extent that they're widely used then those investments do well you know obviously name a blockchain right and most of them if you were an early investor have turned out to be very good investments when i think of content businesses i think of things innovative companies like sky mavis who make the game Axie infinity And they provided a lot of early innovation on business model because they showed what was possible in a game when you design an economic model in the game that allows players to actually make a positive return, meaning they can earn money. And so from what was originally a passion project of Axie Infinity, they actually coined a term which was called the play-to-earn business model for games. And this idea that, you know, for some players they could translate the time they spent playing in the game to an actual commercial outcome because essentially, you know, time does equal money. And if you're if you're playing in a game that has an actual economy as opposed to a false rental economy, then there is a way for you to earn money from that. I think another example would be a company like Yuga Labs, who are most famous for making an IP collection of NFTs called the Bored Ape Yacht Club. And they... I think, have a fantastic business model kind of innovation, which is that they decided when they first issued their collection of 10,000 collectible images, that they were going to share ownership of that IP with their community. And so what they did was they said, we're not going to be the copyright holders of these images. Each individual will own the copyright of their individual item. And that, from the perspective of a traditional IP owner, is a very novel idea, because normally you would think, well, I'm developing the IP. That's my asset. I want to hold on to that. In this case, what they did was they shared the ownership with the community. But what happened was all of the innovation that happened at the margins. If I took my own board ape image and put it on a food truck or put it on my, you know, web development service or what have you as my own brand, I'm essentially evangelizing the wider community of Board Ape Yacht Club IP my individual ape may be mine, but I'm adding value to the community's IP value by doing my own creation. And that's, I think, a really, really seismic innovation. And we're going to see a lot more what I would call community-owned IP growing up in the space as a result of this, because, of course, blockchain allows us the commercial infrastructure to be able to acknowledge and pay royalties, you know, very simply and very securely in the background. And transparently, yes, which is important. Exactly. Uh, I
1: mean, when we had Carrick and Tzolawi from Science Magic Studios, who who led a lot of the um, Web three stuff at Adidas, he referenced exactly that—the commercial rights that board ape yacht club owners have—as a real light bulb moment internally. They were like, "That's fascinating, right?" From an IP perspective, and I agree with you. I'm, I really am sure that amongst this like crazy ride we've had over the last three years with NFTs, especially, it's lost on a lot of people how interesting some of those innovations are whether it's you know as you mentioned simply having digital ownership which kind of arrived one with fungible tokens on chain but then with nfts eos 721s with dapper labs and, and crypto kitties all the way up to to now where we're seeing a lot more token standards but things like play and gaming whether or not there's sustainable models there or whether or not they survive long term the innovations are are incredibly interesting i think the noise sometimes makes people lose sight of the, the simplicity of the the really interesting innovations.
0: Yeah. Well, I think also going back to Axie Infinity, what they showed us was what was possible. Mm. I mean, who would have thought you could build a game from zero to a billion dollars a month in revenue in two years? I mean, nobody in the game industry ever thought that was possible and yet they did it, right? And And they did it with a team who were passionate gamers, but first time game developers. I mean, come on, that's insane, right? an incredible amount of success and i think what they also did was they pointed to the model of the fact that play to earn is possible right and we can argue all day long over what the proper tokenomics are to achieve a long-term sustainable ecosystem and you know you'll get lots of economists arguing over the merits of different ways but i think what they did was they set the bar to say look it's possible and now everybody has something to strive for which is okay that's really cool how do we now make that even more sustainable than the success that they had with it? I think
1: it's a really interesting point and um, yeah, one that I'd love to explore in the second part of the show. A lot of our listeners will obviously have a, a sports background and potentially the first time they would have heard of Animoca was when you uh, invested in or created a JBC with, with OneFootball, OneFootball Labs, which has not done as well as, as the market has, has kind of fallen. And they've gone through a bunch of uh, restructuring, I think, change of the CEO. What was the thinking from an Animoca perspective at the time when you folks were part of that JVC and made that investment?
0: I guess the first question you could ask is, you invested in something related to football? What were you thinking? Because we all know how simple football is, especially European football. Um, So I think for us, you can tell from the name of the company. We call it Animoca Brands because what we were known for even prior to blockchain is we were known as a licensee of intellectual property. So we used to create mobile games from lots of well-known entertainment brands, whether it's Garfield or Astro Boy or Ultraman or Barbie, you name it, you know. And so being a licensee is a particular skill set that we think we possess. So we wanted to bring that also to the world of blockchain entertainment. So we work with both entertainment IP as well as sports IP And within the realm of sports, obviously football is the world's most popular sport, right? Um, And I think it's inevitable that we try to make a mark there. And for us, I think the challenge has been figuring out the best way to approach dealing with football because the rights are so, I guess, the best way to say it, it's not even complicated. It's just so much work meaning there are so many leagues and teams and players and managers and so many stakeholders, I guess would be the generic term, that you need to work with that if you want to make, you know, something on the order of what EA's FIFA title, you really need to have, you know, a couple hundred licensing agreements, probably, right? Just the logistics of it. Forget about the cost. The logistics is tremendous. And so for us, we wanted to approach football with people who understand football because we may know a thing or two about games and blockchain but football is not necessarily our expertise and so for that we wanted to lean on a partner and one football we thought was the appropriate partner because they do have the largest web2 social network in the content vertical.
1: I mean it's well publicized what's happened since and I think market conditions have played a real big part in that. What do you think some of the biggest learnings from that JVC have been?
0: So I would say, and this is not unique to one football, I would say the biggest learning from 20 years of working with licensed content is don't pay MGs that are too high. The streets are littered with people who paid high MGs for stuff. You know, you need to think very carefully when you create content licensing relationships about what your realistic budget is and can be. And I think the challenge in football as a category that, at least based on my own personal experience, is that unlike entertainment, IP, I find that I think the business model of football as an industry doesn't lend itself to co-investment in IP construction, right? If I work with a Japanese anime studio or a Hollywood entertainment company, they will be viewing my product not specifically just as a revenue source. They will be viewing my product as a brand building exercise and a brand extension. How can we leverage, you know, the millions of players you're going to bring into this game that has our IP in it and enhance our brand? Because that enhances our brand value and we'll sell more theater tickets or merchandise or other things even if we don't make a fortune in this game that we're building together. And so that's a consideration. So really, you know, the primary edict in the contract is don't mess up my brand, right? And so there's a very strong amount of negative control around all of the approval processes and things to make sure that the product is faithful to the brand. And what I found specifically in football, which is more of a challenge, is a very heavy focus on upfront payments being maximized, as opposed to can we try to build a product in a relatively risky category together? And when I say risky, it's because games are not always successful. It's a hit-driven business, right? And so we as game makers must invest in building games and we need to put our investment where it will make the most difference. And so if we spend all our money on IP, we have nothing left to build great games behind it. So we really need to find partners with whom we can co-invest in the outcome and As game makers, we also have no problem in sharing the benefits of that outcome. But I think finding people in the world of football who would be willing to, for example, forego minimum guarantees up front in exchange for a very generous revenue share on the back end, very unlikely. But something that you will find in other kinds of content categories quite frequently.
1: It's so well put. I mean, the football business model, there are a lot of question marks around it right now I, I don't know if you followed but um, a lot of people will tell you that Serie A in Italy and Ligue 1 in France have both really struggled on the broadcast rights perspective which is 70 to 80 percent of most of any football rights holders revenue and bottom line so there is not a reckoning to come but like it, it, it feels as though those broadcast rights have either plateaued or they're, or they're lowering I think that's a, for a variety of reasons obviously in the states you're seeing, NFL, NBA still flourish on that side, which is great for them. Football, I think, has to start looking a little bit more laterally. and Whether or not that is the the co-creation of IP, I think broadly the the best one-liner I can think of over the last three years when it comes to Web3 and football, and maybe sport generally, some of these deals were done as if this was a very mature market. Whether it's a banking partner, a betting partner, a fitness partner, like a a kit sponsor, like a Nike or an Adidas, whatever it may be, they were priced up and looked at as if they were markets that were mature and going to have the same kind of, staying power is the wrong word, but lack of volatility to those. And I do think Web3 is is one that everyone is kind of learning on the job to some extent. And it's very difficult for Web3 companies to, yeah, pay those big minimum guarantees and then deliver and execute upon them in a way that makes everyone happy and makes everyone money.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I I think also that sometimes in having these discussions, and this is not limited to just football, I found this in other sports as well, the business model of sports outside of television broadcasting is often around sponsorship. And so I found many discussions in which the counterparty who represents the sports IP would be looking to us through the lens of sponsorship. As opposed to somebody who's supposed to be a business partner to create new revenue streams for them, having that discussion with us, you know, doesn't make any sense because I don't want any Mocha Brands logo on some football kit. That serves no purpose, right? I'm not a sponsor, and so I think figuring out how to put us in that category um, is challenging. In some industries, I think they're still not much of an understanding of just the scale of how big our industry and what gaming means. People are familiar with EA's FIFA title, for example, in football, but may not be familiar with the game industry generally. I mean, there are fun facts out there like, you know, we're sitting here in London and did you know in Britain that British people spend more on video games than they do on the Premier League? By quite a margin, because games make a lot of money. The Premier League doesn't make much money. Honestly,
1: that's such a really good way to put it because the Premier League is not alone in that It's football as a whole, where actually football fans per head spend so much less money on merchandise than American fans on sport. I think sometimes it's between a magnitude of 10 and 30 in terms of difference of spend. And I think
0: also the thing that people don't appreciate is that it's because the penetration of gaming is so high, whereas not everybody likes football. Even though football culturally feels ubiquitous, it's actually, you know, we're talking about if it's 50% of the population, that's great. But gaming is 80%, 90% of the population. You, you just can't beat those numbers.
1: And SKUs younger, digitally native, there, there are a lot of other... I mean, you can't
0: take a tube without seeing people playing games on their phone. It's impossible. Yeah,
1: I'm a, a big Bloons Tower defense guy on the tube. <laughs> You're right there. In terms of going back to one football. Do you see a future path where there can be a lot of innovation there from a Web3 perspective from from that brand? Obviously, you you mentioned they've still got this huge, huge audience,
0: right? Yeah, because our job is to serve their community and to figure out how we can leverage the technologies of blockchain to enhance that relationship that they have with their community and that they facilitate between their community and the clubs and leagues and players that they represent or partner with. They're
1: in a unique position where they do have a lot of coverage on some niche leaks as well. So there could be a, a lot of room for experimentation for them. Obviously, they don't need to go and do the high profile deal anymore with with Siri or whoever it may be. There can be some more niche communities that they, they kind of try and activate through. The Absolutely. Well. And I think
0: that actually leans into a strength of Web3, which is, One of the things Web3 does really well is provide relatively low-cost infrastructure for facilitating these things from a technology standpoint so that you can actually make economically viable projects based on things with smaller audiences of loyal fans. You know, Web3 in and of itself is a relatively small industry. We all love to talk about it because it's what we do. But in user numbers, you know, active participants in the NFT ecosystem. How many people bought an NFT last year? You know, you're talking about an addressable market of 20 million people, but they spent $36 billion last year.
1: There's your headline, right? Another high-profile story, and, and I promise listeners and also Robbie, I'm not trying to uh, beat down on Animoca or anything like that. No problem. But I do think the learnings from some of these stories are, are, are really interesting. I remember writing at the time about F1 Delta Time. Mm-hmm. And for listeners that don't know, Animoca had a, a really popular game, F1 Delta Time, had a lot of users, lots of people buying, trading, and using these NFTs. And you weren't able to renew a license a couple of years ago. And that obviously meant that you had to... I believe, wrap the the tokens and start issuing new tokens to the users to replace them and so on and so forth. As you mentioned earlier, a tremendous logistical undertaking, Um, I can imagine it was. Going back to the rights holder side of things, how frustrating is something like that?
0: It was incredibly frustrating. And I think that one of the things that we try to impress upon all our partners, is in the education process of what it means to create content with true digital ownership is that you must honor that. If you sell somebody a piece of content digitally, it's no different than selling them a piece of physical merchandise. You cannot take it away, you know. You cannot go to somebody's driveway and repossess the automobile that they've paid for. I mean, if they haven't kept up with their payments to the bank, that's a separate story. But if they paid for it, it's theirs and they own it. And they can light it on fire drive it above the speed limit, do whatever they like with it because it's their property. And the same holds true in the digital world. So this is really important. Um, and, and I think it's important for brands to understand that because it reflects on them as brands that they also honor that consumer right of purchase to their customers. I think in our case, it was very difficult for us because I think like any licensee, when you have a licensed relationship you always run the risk of the fact that you don't actually own the IP. And so if the terms and conditions of that IP change over time, as they always do when contracts get renewed, I mean, we've seen what EA has decided to do with respect to FIFA, you have to decide at a certain point what's commercial and what's no longer commercial. And so if you have to make that difficult decision to part ways, then there are consequences and, and, you know, unfortunately we had to try to figure out how best to solve that with the customers that we had already sold content to. And you mentioned that
1: football has this issue with wanting the money up front, minimum guarantees and so on and so forth. I think that is true to some extent for sports, broadly speaking. My sometimes confusion is there aren't that many people out there that are willing to pay for the Web3 IP whether it's like gaming, uh, cards, video moments, and so on and so forth, which I think has probably given some of the companies like Dapper, like SoRare, some some bargaining power to go back to the negotiating table and say, hey, look, next time we renew, it's either this money or you're probably selling it to no one. For me, from an outsider, when I look at something like that and um, the F1 have this popular game that issues NFTs and that's what the license is for, I can't imagine that it was over... A crazy amount of money that this kind of didn't happen, and obviously you can't get into specifics, but that must be even more frustrating that there might not even be a competing partner.
0: It's just a breakdown in that specific licensor-to-licensee relationship. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and you know sometimes these things don't work out, which is a shame. Um, I think that having these kind of licensee-licensor relationships are as much an art as a science to manage. Um, And that's why I think I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that it's something that we feel, you know, in spite of this particular example that we're pretty good at, because I think that we like to think of ourselves as really good stewards of brands. And I think that reflects our background primarily coming from working with entertainment IP, as I mentioned earlier, because we feel like our job is to create a product that enhances the brand and adds to the fan base and the adoration and the value of the brand equity of that brand. And that's job number one. And we will do our best to make revenues from the product, et cetera, et cetera. But job number one is to make sure that we are faithful to and enhancing the value of that brand. We were speaking off air
1: that you've had some good examples recently, probably taking the learnings from a couple of examples we've just gone through, MotoGP and and Formula E. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about those games and those relationships?
0: I think that also these two IPs, for example, are... Outgrowths of the original work on F1 Delta Time, actually, because we always viewed motoring and motorsports as a great venue for digital ownership as a content category within gaming. It's a very beloved category, but it's a big niche, I'll call it that, because there's only a handful of studios around the world that specialize in racing, but it is a pillar. You know, if you go out and you buy five or ten sports games there will be a racing one amongst those because everybody plays a racing game Um, and so we felt it was a good content category and we created the rev token for the purpose of in-game payments for f1 delta time and we wanted to leverage that token and those token holders which is an existing audience um, and figure out how to offer them more content in this content category that we know they love so we we sought other IP within the category, racing IP. And so in this case, both four wheels and two wheels. And also we started working with other brands that make, you know, auto manufacturing brands, race tracks, et cetera, because we don't want to think about content in the traditional way, meaning our job is not purely to make a Formula E game, a MotoGP game, et cetera, because that's what Web2 is really good at. What we want is we want to create essentially like the motorverse Right? We want to create a series of interconnected activities that have some relationship to each other. Because if you think about it from the perspective of the player, when I customize my car in a driving game and I spend lots of money on it and I paint it and I modify it, etc., I want to be able to use that car in as many places as possible. And so it would be great if I can both race it, but I can also use it in an open world game, or I can go drifting or drag racing or all these things. And in this idea of a Web3 interconnected world, I would be able to do that because I can bring these NFT-based assets from place to place.
1: I really want to dig into that aspect of interoperability later in the show. Before we move on to the second part, I want to ask you, where do you see the, the biggest opportunity on the sports side? with Web3, broadly speaking, over the next, let's say,
0: until the decades up? Sure. The biggest opportunity is for sports to really create a direct relationship with their fan. Because what you can do through tokenization is you can essentially, when a fan, you know, has a token, whether they buy it or you give it to them, when they possess a token, that's essentially... You know, to put it in web two terms, it's like a super cookie, if you will, because it's a secure representation of that fan. Right. So if I give you a token, whether it's a motorbike in my MotoGP game or it's a ticket of admission because you went to an event or it's a collectible trading card, doesn't matter because it's on the blockchain and I can identify that as you, the fan and I can treat you accordingly. And then I have the ability, because that token is based on an open standard, to utilize that in a variety of different venues, meaning I can take that original trading card. So for example, in our MotoGP game, our first game was based on trading cards of individual riders. And we can take those trading cards of those riders. And when we came out with our second game, which is an action game, you can bring your trading card And we welcome you into the game, and you receive a playable version of that rider in the game, right? So it translates. We recognize that you're a fan, you own a card of a particular rider, and then we bring it into the second game, and you can enjoy that rider in the second game. Now, if we're really pulling out all the stops in Web3, then when you also show up to a physical event, you should be able to use that card as a ticket, right? You should be able to go to a website and say, I'm going to upgrade my playable NFT to a ticket to attend the live event. But because you know that I'm me and I'm spending in multiple games, maybe I get a discount in that live event. Maybe when I'm at the live event, I can show my NFT in the gift shop and get a discount on merchandise, right? All of these things can be connected because essentially that in-game item that you originally purchased is also your loyalty program membership card, right? And so if you really want to leverage Web3, you need to have this extensibility to be able to wrap all these experiences around your fans. And all the tech and infrastructure is there to do it today and at very low cost because it's all based on open standards, right? And the fun thing is even other people can then create great fan experiences, you know, because some of the greatest content is created by people out in the community and fans. And they can start to create games. They can start to create online quizzes or whatever it is, you know, podcasts and stuff for the fans and token gate them based on all of the token holders um, in that community. So I think it's a tremendous way to connect with the fans. And it allows us to bring down the walls between those silos. Because previously, if you wanted to cater to a fan in that way, you'd basically have a game company that you've licensed your IP to over here, and they'd have a database that was proprietary and they would not share with you. And then you'd have a loyalty program over here where you'd have to sell the same stuff to the same group of people one more time and connect with them again to get their names in a database over here. And then you'd have the tickets of admission for which you may not collect any information at all. So you don't know who's coming to the live events versus who's played the games versus et cetera, et cetera. In Web3, we can do all of that and we can still respect everybody's privacy too because at the end of the day, we don't need to know who the physical person is behind that token, that in-game item that they purchased because we can look at their wallet, which is public knowledge and therefore publicly disclosed and we know how much they spend. So you turn this idea of consumer data a little bit on its head when you think about, okay, it's less important actually to know who my customer is, that you're, you know, a male between the ages of 25 and 40 from the UK, because actually, I really only care how much money you spend and how frequently you spend it. And as long as I know that, I'm less concerned about your gender and all these other personal things about you, because those previously have just been vectors to try to guess at how much you spend.
1: I love the idea of the on-chain network. I think that's a network for fans or consumers, whatever it may be. I think when that's leveraged properly, and I think we're going to see that happen over the next two or three years, because over the last couple, a lot of these brands have tried very hard to, as you said, distribute and broaden that funnel and create those on-chain networks. And I want to see those activated and see how they, they go. And I think it'll be exciting. Before we move on to part two, where we look at the future and gaming specifically, because I know we want to talk about that, I need to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by the HBAR Foundation. The most beloved sports brands understand that what fans want is simple: a reason to be passionate. The HBAR Foundation enables brands and fans to share their passion on-chain using the Hedera network, just what we were talking about. The most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Visit linkedincom company Foundation to learn more and get the latest HBAR Foundation and Hedera network news. So Part two, gaming and the future in Web3. We're at a point in time right now, late 2023, there's a real swell of enthusiasm, I think, in this bear market for gaming specifically. And I think what this last crypto cycle did was create a spectrum for what Web3 gaming is, if that makes sense. You have the play-to-earns, everything's an NFT and everything is tokenized, whether it's your Illuviums and your, your so on and so forth, all the way to something like NFL Rivals by Mythical Games, where it's a mobile game and it incorporates NFTs. Where are you seeing personally the most excitement for you along that spectrum?
0: It's hard to point at a particular favorite, to be honest, only because I see innovation all across the spectrum. I think a big theme is really trying to put Web3 in everything because at the end of the day, Web3 should not be the selling feature in much the same way as when we think about gaming, call it 15 years ago, when we first started to see online games and multiplayer games, because before that it's hard to remember, but we used to just have single player games where you played against the computer, right? And for a while We talked a lot about online games and we talked about playing online games because that was the feature. And technologists have a terrible habit of putting technology first as the feature when maybe that's not really why people are there for the tech. They're there for the fun or for whatever it is. And so I think what we're going to see is that what we're calling Web3 games or blockchain games at the moment, I think give it another year or two. And then after that, we'll just keep calling them games again because it will just be the way that games are made. Because I think it makes so much logical sense and it solves so many problems for both game developers and especially for consumers that I think it will just become the de facto way of how games are made. And and I think a great example of that is I saw a piece on the internet the other day about how, you know, Roblox is one of the most successful online game user-generated content game platforms. And in that game, they have a virtual currency called Robux. And so the primary revenue source of Roblox is selling Robux to players, which they spend in the game to build stuff and personalize their experience. So apparently, um, inflation has also come to Roblox. And so they're devaluing the value of Robux inside the game. And so what that will do is that will actually make all of the money that people own inside the game in that economy worth less right? So Roblox then starts to look a little bit more like Argentina. And it's a shame because it's a very big community. And I think that that is going to sting a little bit to the players in that community. And I think it's a sign that in a Web3 world, something like that would not happen because it would be a public and open market. It would not be the decision of one actor to decide what the value of billions of dollars of items that tens of millions of players have spent or hundreds of millions of players have spent money on is worth. And I think that that kind of centralization, you know, that era is coming to a close.
1: And why do you think that is right now? Do you think that is because we've kind of plateaued in terms of gaming as a whole, growing and and driving revenue? We're seeing, for example, esports, that market is going through a really big depression i suppose in terms of revenues and also um people understanding the business model isn't as simple as just lifting and shifting real life sport to gaming why do you think right now we're seeing because i think when people were talking about gaming two or three years ago everyone was like this is the next greatest unlock this is the next greatest unlock for me i thought it always felt quite far away rather but right now and maybe that's because we're three years on but it feels the it doesn't feel that far away that this could be the next great unlock from a web3 perspective
0: so i think it is for sure and that's because i think going back to what i said in part 1 it's because we don't need to educate the audience of gamers as to the value of virtual items and virtual currency because that's a big ask i think when people make a mindset shift because in web2 we've been unable to protect copyright we've basically coalesced around a bunch of different streaming platforms in order to protect IP, right? Because we tried people downloading music with MP3s in the late 90s and it didn't work. It led to rampant copyright infringement. And so as a result, you know, we have Spotify. Spotify is great from a consumer's perspective, but horrible from a content creator's perspective. And the problem is we're in this kind of honeymoon period where lots of content that was built under other business models still exists that we can benefit from. But going forward, you know, it's very difficult for the music industry to find the appropriate business model that can survive based upon what they get paid from Spotify. You know, Spotify last year paid out, what, like $7 billion of royalties or something like that, or $8 billion of royalties, which is, you know, a quarter of what NFTs paid out. And Spotify has 900 million users or something ridiculous. It's very difficult for the music industry to recover from that. And they've had to change to, you know, a live model where people make their money from touring, et cetera. But the problem is that that benefits primarily the most famous and the largest acts. And it makes it very difficult for innovation for smaller players. And I think if you look at the game industry, what happened... In the period from sort of 2005 to 2010, we had this massive explosion because mobile happened. And what mobile as a platform did was it enabled small indie developers to reach massive audiences. Because your typical small indie developer is not going to be able to make a console title. And then you need to get Sony or Microsoft to decide to publish it on their platform. And so it's really only a game to be played by the big guys. But mobile... Is rife with small developers and don't forget all of the big titles you see now clash of clans from supercell or candy crush from king or angry birds from rovio these were all small companies right they were not leaders in gaming on any other platform they were new to the medium and so i think when you look at games that are coming in web 3 you'll probably see a lot of big successes coming from people who were not incumbent leaders in gaming previously
1: i want to go into what you talked about with Roblox just now. A couple of things, right? One, I think even off-chain, it's very hard to have an economy that is functional and sustainable. And two, there is this real friction, right, between publisher and consumer or Spotify and consumer or um, rights holder and fan, whatever it may be, where the Web3 ethos or business model, there's a lot of friction, right? Because... I remember reading a report by a very well-meaning analyst who talked about EA and how they're leaving $600 million on the table every year because the cards in Ultimate Team aren't NFTs. And I was like, they sell new cards every season and their licenses are seasonal. Mm -hmm. So if they weren't, they'd lose a lot of money because people would be able to play with last season's cards in the new game. And also it would stop a lot of the primary sales, right? And so there's a lot of friction here and... How do we get over this? Is it is it simply the case that consumers just suddenly say, we want more digital ownership, or there's a specific way or model a game can be created, like Loot, for example, that is maybe specific and only uh, unique to Web3? Where do we jump over that hurdle?
0: So I guess it's a little bit like maybe we think about what, uh, I guess maybe Britain's a bad example. America's a better example for this. We think about home building right? So in America, the first half of the 20th century, there was a huge market for home building and lots of companies building homes. And then as places got more crowded, people stopped building new homes, right? They started buying secondhand homes instead. And all of a sudden now, as the country has matured, the real estate industry is mainly based on the idea of secondary sales as opposed to primary sales. And I think we'll see something similar happening in entertainment content because given the ability to actually collect secondary royalties then there's no reason we can't have an industry based upon a very substantial or the majority of revenues actually coming from secondary royalties and traditionally if you look at the music industry that's what it's been right because you have all of these ASCAP and BMI and these these rights management agencies collecting playing royalties from musicians' works or songwriters' works that are being played in karaoke's and clubs and on commercials, etc. And that works very well. And so up until now, we've not had a way to enforce this kind of royalty collection on the internet. But now that we do, we can think about innovating our business models in a way that really allows for content to be much more freely used because we can essentially tag it with royalties to honor the creations and the IP holders that you know gave birth to them.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, we had Nigel Eklis in
0: the last episode who uh,
1: co founded Fanduel, now has two crypto based businesses, one called Betdex, one called Vault. Uh, and Vault is basically doing kind of digital EPs for artists. I said, what you said, which was the the main business model for a lot of artists become touring. And he said exactly what you said, which was, that's only true for the big ones, because anyone that's not got X amount of subscribers or followers actually loses money when they're touring. And they were doing a lot of digging into where they actually make money. And some of them made most of their money from merch, which is crazy, right? You make music and you're selling t-shirts and that's the most money you're making from. It, it just kind of blows my mind but as you said right spotify are in this position where they have this incredible archive of music the artists whether or not willingly more begrudgingly are signing up because that's where the distribution funnel is consumers are happy with this arrangement because they get for a very low price an incredible archive of music and i suppose what i'm trying to say is how do you make consumers more comfortable with potentially paying more or giving up less of that slice where your subscription maybe costs 16 pounds rather than seven or whatever it may be. Maybe it's a completely different model to then honor the hard work that those creators have. Because I think everyone who listens to music, watches films, plays games, everyone's like, yeah, they, they should make more money because they're working very hard. What's specific or small? Well, and,
0: and we see fans voting on that with their wallets because, you know, there are plenty of people out there who bought Taylor Swift's reissued music based on the sole fact that the music was not very different from the original copy they had, but that they wanted her to benefit. And there's a huge culture, particularly among younger audiences on the internet of tipping, whether it's live stream events or podcasts, we'll see if people can tip (laughs) us in this podcast. Um, But it's the idea that I feel like I have a connection with this artist. And I want, you know, I I want to compensate them for that. And and that's a show of my affection for the content that they create. I think the key is that bringing it back to technology, that we actually have the ability to enforce all of these payments at extremely low cost. And so that actually opens up the market to a lot of those smaller and medium-sized artists, you know, going back to the music analogy, because Unlike with the manual royalty collection system of the 1950s, where you needed an agency to go around physically to all the clubs and ask them, how many times did you play this and how many, you know, and that got more automated over time, but essentially it required a huge amount of expense because those auditing companies in the middle had a massive job to do, you know, not unlike, you know, financial accountants. Whereas as we do it on the blockchain, you know, you set up a smart contract and then the thing just works automatically from there so you can do it at very low costs and when you can do that you make that system of royalty infrastructure accessible to a much more broader audience and it's just as effective whether you're taylor swift or you're an independent band because the smart contract doesn't care how much revenue is going through it
1: it's a game changer right i think the on-chain, real-time settlement nature of the blockchain is something that people really haven't taken advantage of, whether it's um, in-game inventory, music, entertainment, whatever it be. I wanted to rewind really quickly to um, the kind of walled garden nature of Web2 games. And you mentioned that when mobile gaming came along, a lot of the publishers weren't that well-known. Do you envision something similar happening with Web3, where the likes of Epic and Roblox creators and, and so on and so forth are ousted, so to speak? Or do you think there's a chance some of these publishers get ahead of the curve? I mean, I referenced the EA and FIFA Ultimate Team example. Now, EA Ultimate Team, sorry, don't see me, EA. Um, They're in a, between a rock and a hard place. They don't want to kill the golden goose, Mm -hmm. but they may know that the vision that you have is where it's trending. And so if you are someone like a big publisher, where you're trying to stay ahead of the curve, is it going to be really difficult to actually do that? Because you don't want to... Cannibalize your own audience with a new model that might make you less money short term.
0: So, I think what we've observed historically is that those large incumbent players will tend to sit on the sidelines, I think, until their customers demand of them to participate in the market. And then they will come in and acquire the leader. And that's typically what happens. And we saw the same thing happen in mobile. You know, most of the big console game companies didn't jump into mobile until the innovators in mobile were already looking for the next thing. So five, seven years into it, right? Because they don't need to. They have a great, you know, existing business. And as long as that existing business is not threatened and continues to tick over, then they will just take a wait and see approach until they feel comfortable.
1: That makes a ton of sense. The last question I've got on on the gaming front is, there's been a rush from a lot of the successful NFT IPs. Raised a lot of money, sold a lot of JPEGs, and you were like, we need to make a game, which seems to be the default for a lot of these NFT IPs. And I think the likes of maybe Yuga that you mentioned, the Bordeaux Yacht Club creators, are maybe slightly different because they are incredibly well capitalized and they are trying to go for a very lateral approach across various industries and gaming just naturally fits into to one of those buckets but it seems as as though a lot of those nft based ips are deferring straight to gaming do you think there's logic in that or do you think there is going to be quite high saturation because if you hold 10 nfts from your favorite creators and all of a sudden eight of them have games that are playable with those nfts your audience isn't going to play all of them so there's going to be a situation where maybe a few of them survive Where do you see that side of it? Because we've talked a lot about the incumbent organizations. We mentioned you a little bit, and we mentioned blockchain gaming publishers who are creating games specifically from the ground up with NFTs. But some of these NFT IPs that have gone IP first and
0: then created games, where do you see that part of the market? So I think that the most important thing that creators of NFTs are thinking about always is utility for those NFTs. And how do they define that utility? Um, and this is true of any token, right? Bitcoin is the most basic one. Bitcoin has the utility of existing as Bitcoin and that's it. It doesn't purport to have any functionality other than being a store of value that's reliable. And that token is enjoyed for the fact that it has a very simple function. I think for other tokens that are created, like as you said, NFT collections, I think they're always trying to cater to their communities and decide what it is that their community wants from them to be able to enhance the value of those collections. And the value by definition is usually utility. And I think there's an implication that the more utility you have, potentially that that might translate to financial value of some sort. And so I think gaming has been low hanging fruit for those collections because there is also a symbiotic relationship between the companies that make games and the companies that have existing collections with audiences. Because, you know, from our perspective as game makers, we're always looking to connect with new audiences. And so a great way in which to do that is to welcome those collections on board into your game. i give you an example. So we have a user-generated content metaverse called the Sandbox. And the Sandbox has a very particular what we call voxelated art style. It's very similar to Minecraft, if you're familiar with Minecraft. So it's a unique art style. And in thinking about how we could enhance interoperability between Sandbox and other NFT projects and collections, in the last season three that we launched for the Sandbox, we called it the season of interoperability. And we created voxelized avatars that represented the unique NFTs that were issued by dozens of different NFT collections, whether it was Board Ape Yacht Club, or Pudgy Penguins, or Azuki's, or you name it, bunch of different NFT collections. And if you hold an NFT, which are all unique, from one of those collections in your wallet, you come to Sandbox, you will receive an avatar which represents your, you know, in three D voxelized art which represents your two D image. And so for the people from those communities you know hopefully many of them and a lot of them did find this very cool because here i own this 2d picture which i really like and and which i've collected and is very personal to me and i can come to this game and i automatically get an avatar which is kind of a fun interpretation in a different art style of my unique item and when i'm in this sandbox metaverse i appear as this unique avatar which maybe everybody already knows me from twitter because it's my twitter profile or whatever it is and From the perspective of Sandbox, it's a way for them to onboard user communities. Because if I go and translate 10,000 images from a collection of NFTs, a percentage of those users will come and start to play in Sandbox as a result of that benefit, that utility that they receive. And so from the Sandbox's perspective, you can think of the investment in creating that art as a user acquisition strategy where you're not spending money buying ads on Facebook. That's really interesting.
1: Switching gears really quickly, I mean, we've seen brands connect to games through NFTs or at least announce that they're going to. So I think the best example of this is .swoosh by Nike with EA and also uh, .swoosh with Epic and Fortnite and trying to create some sort of functioning interoperability without it being completely open source. Yeah. And we interviewed Tuner, Alex Amso, on episode two, Is a good mutual friend of ours, and he was kind of quite adamant that the best NFTs for games will, well, the best NFTs will probably come from brands, because if brands al- create something and then allow .dot .swoosh users to go and connect Fortnite, EA, and whatever else it may be, they don't really care if you connect with EA or Fortnite because they're not competitors with them mm-hmm. yet, potentially. But in terms of game to game, that's a lot more difficult right now. Do you agree with that line of thinking or do you see it slightly differently?
0: I see it a little bit differently. Let's talk about the World Trade Organization. So if you think about the World Trade Organization, and I use this as an example because when I first moved to Asia in the, in the early 90s, one of the big topics of discussion, um, because I moved to China, was whether China would join the World Trade Organization or not. And the naysayers said that it would be a ridiculous idea to allow China to join the World Trade Organization because what would happen as a result would be that there would be less tariff barriers, and so China would flood the world with cheap goods, but Chinese people don't have any money, so they wouldn't buy anything. And so it would be an unfair trade. And so it's better to keep up those barriers and keep us isolated. And the people who were arguing for Openness and essentially for what in Web3 we call the network effects, said, Well, actually, what will happen is China will sell lots of goods and they will make money, and the money they make, they will then spend to buy goods from us. We all know what happened, obviously. China joined the World Trade Organization, and actually, what happened was everybody was better off as a result because the world got lower priced manufacturing, um, benefiting from China's labor force. But at the same time, you can't go to a high street around the world and look at any, you know, shopping district and not find Chinese people buying stuff. And so I think the same theory applies when you think about games in Web3. We talk about this a lot. We think interoperability and openness are the key because the rising tide lifts all the boats. What happens is, you know, to use a specific game analogy, if you have a racing game and I have a racing game, right? And a player buys a car in my game and that car is usable in both our games. The Web2 way of looking at that player taking the car to your game that they bought in my game would be, I lost a customer to you, right? But that car now has the utility of two games. That car should be worth more than a car that only has utility in one game. And so when that car is resold... That secondary trade, I will get a royalty for that because I'm the creator of that car. I made the primary sale. And so I don't care how many games it's usable in. In fact, I want it to be usable in as many games as possible because then it will have more utility, therefore more value, therefore I will get more creator royalties. So it's the royalty infrastructure that facilitates the ability for us to allow for the content to travel more widely.
1: Makes total sense. The trade organization analogy was a good one once you took me through that journey. So thank you. (laughs) I want to wrap up with a couple of questions, right? So there's a lot of Web3 skeptics, right? What do you currently think
0: that they are correct about where crypto needs to mature? I think most of the skepticism around Web3 comes from two fronts. One is, and I don't mean this to sound negative, but a lack of education meaning a lack of understanding. They haven't investigated what Web3 is really capable of and how it can solve problems. They just don't know much about it. And so if you just read a couple of headlines, it's like anything. If I go and do a Google search for crypto scams, I will never be able in my lifetime to read how many articles are returned. Any industry where people can make lots of money and grows quickly is rife with bad actors. And we have plenty of them in Web3 as well. So first the education process. People need to learn more about Web3. And I think the second thing that we need is we need to probably have better regulation in Web3. We're making strides to that. And in fact, this is the first podcast I can say this on, the UK is making strides now as well, right? So we saw a new consultation document come out this week, which clearly sets out guidelines, if I'm understanding it correctly, between, for example, Tokenized content, so NFTs that I play in my video game, as opposed to financial instruments that banks use that are also tokenized. And that's a really important distinction because we don't believe that you can use the same legislation for banking transactions and video games. It doesn't make any sense. Just because we use the same technology of tokenization, just like we wouldn't, you know, regulate a banking website and a game website just because they're both websites. However, some legislation around the world has kind of hinted at bucketing anything that's tokenized in the same bucket, which is one of the reasons that, for example, in the US right now, I think things are progressing more slowly in Web3 as a result of the appearance of broad sweeping generalizations when it comes to regulation.
1: I think the regulatory part is right. I mean, there's the optics that Web3 is a, still a wild, wild west. As someone who's been in and around this space for five, six years, it feels very much less than it was back then. It does. Um, but if you were coming into it fresh, you would probably still have that thought. So I do think you're right in that regard, for sure. And I think some of the consultation we saw in the UK this week, there's also a lot of progressive countries in Europe, I think France. Portugal, Germany are doing a really good job. I think a lot of Asia has been way ahead of the curve here in terms of Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong especially. So there is seemingly light at the end of the tunnel from that perspective. Yeah, for
0: sure. And, and I think this year is a real watershed because what we're seeing is the results of a huge amount of investment and attention towards the Web3 industry. And as we all know, regulation follows because it takes a long time. And so now that, you know, we're no longer the hottest industry in town, the regulation is coming because the regulators, we started to attract their attention a couple of years ago.
1: I think that attention can definitely culminate with not Black Swan, but big events like FTX imploding, Celsius and, and also Luna, uh, Terra Luna, of course. So the attention, the usage of these networks coupled with the kind of scams or, or implosions of a few companies or alleged scams, rather I should say to protect myself, of this industry those two things coupled together really make for a regulatory soup that needs stirring big time.
0: Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I think also, to be honest, journalism bears responsibility, I think, to keep these things in perspective as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's been some really good coverage. I mean, for example, what happened with the FTX implosion. I think a lot of good writers at Coindesk did a great job covering that B Some of the mainstream coverage we saw afterwards, which maybe painted some of the bad actors in that story in a in a positive light. I do agree with you that there has to be a lot more common sense and good investigative journalism around some of these stories because, you know, even we saw with some of the Bitcoin ETF rumors last week where there was a few tweets, deleted tweets, stories and and rumors and in a market that is not that regulated and has these Three hundred sixty five day a year twenty four seven markets that can be open to manipulation that obviously leads to to bad optics and, and distrust as well mm. I'll finish up on these couple of questions that we always ask to, to all our guests what What are you most excited about broadly speaking in web three over the next few years?
0: Oh few years that's a long time in web three. What am I most excited about? I'm most excited about the fact that I feel like the space is definitely maturing and I think the numbers bear that out in terms of just you know the number of companies the amount of investment the amount of trading volume you pick any metric you like all the metrics frankly are good and the only way that i think you could find bad metrics is if you're comparing them with a different market and i think if you do that you need to compare apples to apples and think about the macroeconomic picture and where your baseline was because if you zoom out as they say and look at a three-year or a five-year or a 10-year picture, then everything is headed in the right direction and continues to do so. And so I think for that reason, I'm very bullish on the sector. I do think from the perspective of games as a content medium, I do think that all games will be using blockchain infrastructure at some point in time in the future. I think that's inevitable, frankly, because I think that the evolution to true digital ownership is also inevitable. For all types of content because it's not only more fair to the consumers and consumers will demand it over time, but also it's very affordable infrastructure, right? And so for companies who are working in this space, they can then choose how they want to deploy those margins. So if you're in a business right now working in a closed environment where you take a 30% margin, say, from your customers and you move to technology that allows you to only have to take a 2% margin from your customer, you can still charge them 10 or 20% if you want. That's a commercial decision. It's up to you. But to have the benefit of infrastructure that allows you that kind of cost savings, I think, is tremendous. And that is an opportunity, I think, for, for businesses um, to think about how they want to deploy the technology. And then conversely, where do you
1: think there's a bit too much attention? Where do you think there might be some
0: overhype? Within web three? Overhype. So hmm. That's a difficult question. I find myself struggling because I, I think I'm part of the hype machine. <laughs> I, I am a I am an ardent believer in in the inevitability of these things. I think that if anything, overhype would be about timescales. Because I think I do believe that this is we're in sort of this inexorable movement towards a web three world, and that's why we're calling it web three. We think it's the third version of the internet. But I can't tell you if it's going to be in 12 months, 24 months or five years. That I don't know. And so I think for people promising that this will happen overnight, then perhaps that would be a little bit overhyped. So I think the timescale is, your guess is as good as mine, but I do think it's inevitable. Well, we'll wrap things up there.
1: I think the inevitability of Web3 is the, the punchline at the end. Uh, thank you so much for listening
0: or, or watching to this episode. Uh, Robbie, where can people find out more about you? So you can come to our website, animocobrands.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, which is where we spend most of our time in Web3 socializing. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from people. Fantastic.
1: Well, we'll uh, link all those in the show notes and you'll see them up on screen if you're watching. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the newsletter, sportingcrypto.com is where you can find all of our content. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at petbarisha. And you can find all of our content on the site, as we mentioned. Just remember that none of what we have said today during the show is financial or business advice. And this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we're recording right now in the UK, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Please leave us a review, subscribe to the show, and we'll have more sporting crypto content for you soon.